0: Good morning. Before I begin this morning, let me just uh, say a a word. I think most of you probably know this by now, um, but we are uh, very pleased um, that uh, Rob and Marissa Diaz uh, have a new member of their family, Rachel. And um, if you get a chance, uh, pray for them. They are resting uh, and need much rest, uh, especially. Marissa, and uh, keep them in your prayers, and in the weeks to come, uh, we will also be, um, Cheryl will be putting together a sign-up list so that you can bless them and bring them meals. Uh, From what I've heard, Rob would really appreciate that, uh, meals for their family, but praise the Lord for this healthy baby girl, Um, and we're so excited for them as well. Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer before we begin the sermon. Father, as we continue our way through the book of Genesis and travel with Abram and come this morning to Genesis 12 and 13, Lord, help us To not just study the text, to know the text, to understand what it says, but also what it means. May we not be short-sighted, only seeing what's happening on the ground in the life of Abram and Sarai, but how you, Lord, are providentially at work, even sometimes in the worst of situations. How you are providentially at work to bring about your will and your plan and your purpose, which is so good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's always puzzling to me how non-Christians can become so shocked and offended when they discover that Christians are fallible sinners. Sometimes there's an assumption that if you are a Christian, well, then you must be perfect. As if you never struggle to trust God or to remain faithful to him. This assumption, and I would say misconception, tends to Presuppose that Christianity is a religion that kind of floats in the clouds and consists of people who are angelic, removed from the struggles and the hardships and the temptations, the many temptations of everyday life. Isn't this true? Isn't it amazing how you rarely find a person in Scripture, though, who is not stained by character flaws? Does it surprise you that after great feats of faith, a Bible character can find themselves in such a dark valley? The story of Scripture is replete with examples, is it not? Adam is given dominion over the earth to name the animals, only to be conquered by one of them, this snake who deceives. David slays Goliath, is made king, and then the man commits not only adultery, but murder. Elijah, perhaps one of my favorite Bible characters and my favorite examples, Elijah commands fire to come down from heaven itself in his contest with the prophets of Baal, only to then flee from Jezebel in utter fear run for his life and then ask the lord to just kill him <laughs> or consider peter peter who one moment says he will go and die with jesus if he must only to then deny jesus not once Not twice, but three times. We could go on, couldn't we? We could go on. But the point is clear. Sometimes those who exhibit enormous faith in God also show signs of great weakness too as they fail to trust God And his promises as they should. This morning we return to the story of Abram and Sarai. And what we discover is that Abram too is one of those characters. We've seen it with Adam. We've seen it with Noah. And now we come to Abram. Who's just been called by God and given these amazing promises He too is one of those characters. While the first half of Genesis 12 demonstrated that he was a man who listened and obeyed God in light of the promises that God had made to him of an offspring to come and land that he will be blessed with, now we see that this same man, having received these promises, this same man becomes fearful, afraid, And yes, even deceptive. I want to begin this text. And so put your finger here in Genesis 12 and 13 as we're going to be moving through these chapters. I want to begin by pointing out Abram's deception and the threat that occurs to God's promise. Look at Genesis 12 10 with me. Notice right away in the story what is happening. There is a famine in the land. This meant that Abram, his family, and his animals had very little food. And they very well could have been in danger of starvation. So Abram leaves and he goes down to Egypt in order to find food. But there's a problem. There's a big problem. Abram knows that if the Egyptians, these princes under Pharaoh's charge, if they see Sarai, his wife, they're going to know how beautiful she is. They're going to see it. And they may very well kill him in order to have her as their own. Certainly we can sympathize, can't we, with Abram's fear. He surely fears for his own life, and it's not a small matter. However, it's his solution to the problem that may very well display his lack of faith and trust in God to provide security. If you remember back to Genesis 12, God promised to bless those who bless Abram, and to curse those who curse him. This promise should have instilled within Abram assurance that he could enter into Egypt and God would protect him and his family as well as his possessions, especially in light of the fact that God had promised to prosper his offspring and to make a great nation out of him. And a great name from his name. But instead, Abram resorts to his own ingenuity. And he hatches a plan in order to deceive Pharaoh out of all people. Pharaoh. Sarai will pretend that Abram is her brother and not her husband. and this way, Pharaoh will not see Abram as a threat to having Sarai. Now, besides not trusting God here, Abram's plan, I think if we're honest, his, his plan shows insensitivity to his wife's safety. Sure, Abram would now be safe But at what expense? His own wife now, being taken and being made the wife of another man? Surely this couldn't have been commendable before God. Regardless, Abram's plan does work, at least temporarily. They see her beauty. And she's taken into Pharaoh's house And now she belongs to him. Abram is treated very well for her sake too. Pharaoh gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, male and female servants even. In other words, this may be hard for us because we deal with money. But in in these days, This was wealth. You have to understand what this meant. To be given all of these animals, as well as servants, at your disposal, it was to make Abram very rich. In other words, Abram suddenly became a wealthy man, and all because of this little lie Which Pharaoh believed. Which brings us to God providentially blessing Abram. Look at verses 17 through the rest of chapter 12. Despite Abram's efforts to keep things a secret, Pharaoh discovers well, that Abram had lied to him. We're not told all the details, but it seems that Pharaoh started to put two and two together especially when unusual things start happening like a plague on your entire household the text doesn't tell us but it may have involved not only sickness but perhaps even death this devastating plague comes down upon him verse 17 tells us that this was the lord's doing this isn't an accident this isn't some random chance events. No, this is from the hand of the Lord. God wasn't about to bless this twisted circumstance, nor was He about to let His promise to Abram to make a great nation out of him. He wasn't about to let this this promise be compromised. I want I want to pause right here because it is so important that you see and understand what a threat this entire circumstance and situation was to God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Do you see this? This is a threat to God's promise. This entire situation. Follow the logic here. If Sarai is taken by Pharaoh in Egypt then the promise to make Abram a great nation through a physical seed, offspring. It's lost. Do you see this? It's, It's lost. And it's lost not only in terms of physical descendants, but in terms of the land of Canaan as well. In other words... Everything hinges on this disturbing story at the end of Genesis 12. At this point, we're left wondering whether God's promise will be lost forever to these Egyptians, all because of Abram's deceptive scheme. Do you feel the weight of that? God's very promises are on the line. But God comes through, doesn't He? He strikes Pharaoh and his house with plagues. And suddenly, Pharaoh comes to realize that the woman that he has taken is actually Abram's own wife. And not only that... But by messing with her, God was going to bring Pharaoh down. People, this is the most powerful man in the land. He is the king. And suddenly, he is brought to his knees because he realizes he's not only been deceived but he is playing with divine fire. Isn't it interesting? Abram was to be a blessing to the nations, but here his actions have resulted in a curse upon the nations. Nevertheless, through this curse of a a plague, God remains faithful to his promise. And he protects this future seed, even despite the fact that Abram was not necessarily living by faith, but rather by fear. Pharaoh's response to, to Abram, it's quite ironic. Notice what is said here. Abram came into Pharaoh's city. How? Dishonestly. But when Pharaoh discovers the truth, he asks Abram why he wouldn't have been honest with him. He says, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not say Why did you say, she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. You see the irony in this? The man of God comes in with dishonesty and here a pagan king asks for honesty. Desiring the plague on his house to end, Pharaoh then sends Abram, and Sarai away. But here is exactly where we see God's providence at work. And isn't this true throughout the Bible so often? Isn't this true so often in our own lives? Through our own mistakes and sins and catastrophes, here we see that God's providence is working right through them. Though Abram's deception was Dishonoring to God. It was God's intention all along to use Abram's misstep to further his promise and his plan. How so? Look at verse 20. Did you notice that Abram is sent away with all that he had? We're told this in chapter 12, verse 20. And then if you look ahead at chapter 13, how does the chapter begin in verse 1? It makes mention of this as well. All of the wealth Abram had gained, he now gets to keep? Which only must have furthered God's plan to make a great people out of this man. In Genesis 3.13-2, we read this. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So apparently it's not just the land, it's not just the animals, but actually the silver and gold he now possessed as well. And as the text goes on, we also read that Abram is now going where? He's returning back to the land that God had promised, rather than straying away in Egypt. And then finally, look at verse 4 of chapter 13. We see that Abram's faith is once again renewed as he calls upon the name of the Lord. Do you see how this man, after this disaster of a situation, now at the beginning of chapter 13, he's restored? His fear is now turned into faith. He has abandoned his fear and now he has reinstated trust in God. Unfortunately, things would not end here. Peace would not be preserved. We see in Genesis 13 that there's going to be strife between Abram now and Lot. Peace is does not necessarily return when Abram leaves. In Genesis 13, the the plot only begins to thicken, doesn't it? As strife erupts between these two men, really between their servants. Abram is not the only one with flocks and herds. He's not the only one that's wealthy now. Lot, too, has many, which goes to show that Lot also benefited and was, was very blessed being related to Abram. The problem, however, is that the land they are, the land they're in, it can't, it can't hold them both. Look at verse 7. Genesis 13, 7 says that things got so tense, so tense that the herdsmen began fighting with one another. Probably over the land and whose flocks and herds. Get to have it and benefit from it. To make things even more problematic, did you notice that it also says that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in this land too? This is just a side note. But this is not the last time there will be strife between Abram's descendants and Lot's descendants. In the future, as the story goes on, there will be tension between the Moabites and the Ammonites, descendants of Lot, and Israel, descendants of Abram. So, this tension, this strife, is something that's going to characterize the book of Genesis as well as the history that follows. What happens next? Abram, what does he do? He strikes a deal with Lot. In order to relieve the strife, they need to split up and go their separate ways, each having their own land to dwell in. Abram's next move, though, is a surprising one. It's a surprising one. You would have expected, think about this, if you were Abram, what would you have done at this point? It's Probably not this, is it? Abram, we would have expected him to have the first choice, right? He is, after all, the patriarch. He is the one that God has called. And he is the one that God has promised to bless. He's the senior, the one who God has even chosen. But Abram, What does he do? He gives Lot the first choice of the land. Lot. I think this may display in a small way Abram's faith once again in God's promise. In other words, Abram perhaps learning from his mistake with Pharaoh, Abram placed his confidence once again in God's promise to give him the land and to bless him. So let Lot have the first choice. God's promise will stand and it will continue. Lot chose the Jordan Valley. It was, no, notice how the texts don't miss these details as you're reading the Bible. Details are incredibly important. Notice that Lot chose the Jordan Valley, which the text says was well watered. And what could have been more important if you were there and had all of these flocks and animals and herds Plus, it says that the water here that's so abundant, it, it would have been the source, your life source of prosperity for food from this land. In fact, so abundant is this Jordan Valley. Look at verse 10. Genesis 13:10, Genesis it even compares it to the garden of the Lord. This is the garden of Eden. And so the text says, Lot went east. Now, here is the problem. Don't don't miss the clues that are given to you as a reader in the text. That this decision really is a bad one. Often in Scripture... The text will give you, the author will give you as the reader clues as to good and bad decisions, interestingly enough, based on geographical location. And that's what's happening here to a degree. Adam and Eve, notice, Adam and Eve, they are expelled from what? The garden. They're driven out of the garden and they're sent east. Of Eden. After Cain kills his brother Abel, he is driven away from the presence of the Lord and he settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here, here too, we have a geographical hint. Lot goes east. Now, this is significant because rather than choosing the land of Canaan, Lot goes outside the land, to the farthest regions of the land, to other cities. Notice while Abram settled in the land of Canaan, that is the land of promise, verse 12 says that the Lord, that, that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. If you were an Israelite, in Israel, receiving this book of Genesis from the hand of Moses, hearing this, being read, there would have been you would have gasped at this point in the story. Sodom? Not Lot, Lot, not Sodom. Anywhere but there. Lot's choice to pitch his tent as far as Sodom would have devastating consequences. Verse 13 indicates, what? That the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. And if we back up to verse 10, even this lush land of the Jordan is qualified by that sentence in parentheses in your Bible that says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You see again the irony in the story. The land that was lush will be the land that God will destroy with fire. But even the mention of that land, even the mention that the land was in the direction of Zoar in verse 10, is again a clue to you as the reader of the terrible fate that awaits Lot. For this would be the city he would flee to after leaving with much haste Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was looking upon, naturally was looking upon the outward appearance. But he failed to consider that it was outside the heart of the land of Canaan, and that the men within it were wicked. One can't help but wonder at this point why Lot was straying further and further away from the land of promise, situating his family and all that he possessed among a very wicked people this couldn't have been good for his family, spiritually, and only must have put them in in serious danger. As we'll discover in the weeks to come, Genesis 14 will not be the last time Abram has to rescue Lot, will it? In Genesis 19, God, well actually in Genesis 14, God is going to use Abram to rescue Lot. But again, in Genesis 19, God will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but use Abram again to bring Lot out of a terrible situation. While Lot's future, it's it's wrapped up in turmoil. Abram's is one that's covered with the Lord's banner of blessing. Lot chose to enter into Forbidden cities, Abram waits. He waits upon the Lord for the land of promise. Look with me at the end of Genesis 13, at verses 14 through 18, because here we see that though God's promise has been threatened, now his promise is secured. The Lord calls upon Abram to lift up his eyes, Lift up your eyes, Abram. Lift your eyes up and look out in every direction that you see. North and south, east and west. Abram, look at all of this land that you see in front of you, behind you. Look at it. It's for you, he tells him. I God Almighty, I will give it to you, Abram, and to your offspring and, and forever. And not only that, Abram's offspring will be, God says, they will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In other words, you won't be able to count them. Perhaps we could put it this way. If you can count every speck of dust on the earth, then you can count the offspring of Abram. So God tells him, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Here we see that God's promise made to Abram in Genesis 12. It's renewed. And it's reiterated again. And what better timing in light of Abram's silly choices in Egypt, though it seemed as if God's promise would be snuffed out by Pharaoh and Egypt, God was at work all along, even through Abram's poor decisions to bring his chosen servant back to the land. Though God's promise was threatened, it has now been secured. It's fitting then that we would come to the end of Genesis 3, Genesis 13, and we would end on a note of faith and worship. The text says there, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Sound familiar? Abram, and as a Christian, hear this. Abram was not distracted by his newfound wealth. Instead, his gaze was fixed, set on the Lord, placing his confidence and trust in divine promises, which is quite amazing, isn't it? Quite amazing given that Abram still had no heir, no son. And as he looked out on the land that God was saying was to be his, he still saw the land occupied by other people, Canaanites. as Hebrews reminds us of, Abram did not depend upon sight, but faith. At the start of this sermon, I mentioned how often in Scripture godly characters are covered by warts. Do you think we can relate to One moment they're trusting God, and the next they're struggling, struggling to live according to his promises. Surely this is the case with Abram in Genesis 12 and 13. But what I hope you can see this morning is that in these chapters, it's God's providence. It's God's providence that is at work. And it's His plan that won't be thwarted. Though the seed of the serpent continues to threaten the seed of the woman, God providentially. Is orchestrating this symphony of a story so that his seed, his promised offspring is not snuffed out but continues so that God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled and the nations are blessed. Brothers and sisters of Fellowship Baptist Church, May Genesis 12 and 13, may they reassure us that the God that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is good. He remains faithful to his promises. And may we not forget that he's not only good, but his goodness is accompanied By his power, his sovereignty, for his promises, they will not fail. Instead, they shall prevail. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, may we wake up each morning and be reminded of your promises. Lord, your promises made to Abram at such an early point in the history of redemption were great. And yet, Lord, Abram, could, how could he have seen just how great these promises would be as they came to fulfillment not only in the great nation that you would bring out of his name, but in the one seed, Jesus Christ, that you would raise up as a son of Abraham to redeem sinners like us so that the nations would be blessed. Lord, we are the recipients of that blessing. We are sons and daughters of Abraham, not because of anything we have done, of course, but only because of Christ and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We celebrate Christ this morning. and It's in his name that we pray. Amen.